And I think it's much better to make sure that the kinds of discourse around us, the kind of art shows that we produce are helping people see the biases and presuppositions of the world they live in rather than making this pretense of being a form of righteous propaganda, convincing the nebulously defined other side when it's not actually reaching them at all. It's just affirming an identity. Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. This week, it finally happened. Joe Biden won the election, and barring some unlikely coup, he will become our next president in January, which is a big relief. As we all know, Donald Trump famously entered presidential politics on a golden escalator, which is fitting because he went on to escalate every division he could suss out in America. Biden, on the other hand, is entering the presidency on what you could call a de-escalator, vowing to restore America to some prelapsarian state of national unity. So, what does all of this mean for art? Where do we go from here? And does the art world really want a Biden-style moderate centrism, or does it want something else? To discuss, I'm pleased to be joined on the show by Artnet News contributor Brian Boucher, then senior market reporter Eileen Kinsella, and then finally, chief art critic Ben Davis. Welcome to the Art Angle, Brian. Thanks. Long-time listener, first-time caller. Glad to be with you. <laughs> so you are known as being a reporter who's very well-networked into the living and breathing art scene. You're plugged into the pulse of what artists are up to these days. How have you been following the way that the election is playing out in the art community right now? Well, I hate to say it, but very much from my studio apartment in upper Manhattan, as I've been trying to keep the coronavirus numbers down, but like so many other people, just waking up and cycling through Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and cycling back and forth from qualified hope and unqualified terror, like at mm. least uh, the rest of the progressive sector of the art world that is my personal community. And are you seeing a lot of, is there jubilation? Is there anxiety? What would you say is the mood? There's plenty of each. I mean, as people were popping champagne corks, I was riding my bike around the city on Saturday, but also stopped in at some art galleries on the Lower East Side. And, you know, I was just talking to a public art curator this morning who said, I'm a lot more scared for the next 72 days than a lot of other people in the art world. But there is plenty of, of real, real jubilation and a deep, deep sense of relief among the artists and, and curators who I'm talking to. So really a lot of each. Hmm. So what were artists doing in the run-up to the election to mobilize, to engage with politics, to be active? I mean, artists have been doing all the things that artists do, which is to donate their works to fundraising sales. David Zwerner Gallery raised $5 million for the Biden Victory Fund with artworks donated by artists like Carol Beauvais and Marcel Zama and Richard Serra. And using their visual literacy and cultural fluency to create artworks that hopefully raise awareness and provoke thought. For Freedoms, the nonprofit launched by 
Hank Willis Thomas and Eric Gottesman and Michelle Wu a few years ago organized a, a billboard campaign nationwide. And I just was looking at Edgar Heap of Birds's billboard in Fresno, California that read, why are immigration laws written by foreigners mm-hmm. through the Native American lens? And then to Carlos Matas in New York that quotes Audre Lorde saying, liberation is not the private province of one particular group. So these are very much uh, sort of oblique commentary, not pro-Biden or anti-Trump explicitly, mm-hmm. although you don't have to scratch far under the surface to guess who they would be supporting. But also, I think the last four years have shown the actual importance of electoral politics. I mean, three Trump appointments to the Supreme Court that are going to affect this country in, in various baleful ways for a generation to come, inspired people to phone bank and to canvas. I mean, groups of artists were getting together to make calls to get out the vote. There's been a huge rise in artists creating artworks for various causes. I think those who weren't so thrilled about Biden as a candidate have been donating works, as they often do, not just in the last four years, but to causes like prison abolition and racial justice and the ACLU. Hmm. We're obviously light years away from 2008 when Shepard Ferry's Hope poster provided this kind of viral banner for Obama's coalition to march underneath. But this year, it didn't seem like there was anything of that stature that came out of the visual arts community. Were there any standout efforts that you saw from the art community to really galvanize the vote for Biden this year? Standout? I'm not so sure that I would characterize any of them in that way exactly. I mean, speaking of Shepard Ferry, he and a number of other artists created I Voted stickers that sort of reimagined the fusty old sticker that you get when you vote in person. And they even got David Hammonds to participate, not Hmm. an artist that I associate with sort of sunny, civic-minded, unambiguous messaging. One thing I did find interesting, Dred Scott, an artist I've written about a few times and I really admire, created an artwork that riffed on Andy Warhol's Vote McGovern print Mm -hmm. that had Richard Nixon's face and uh, his had a smiling Donald Trump with the caption Vote Biden. And of course, Deb Cass did a similar Vote Hillary piece in 2016. But To turn it around a little bit, I mean, the Biden-Harris campaign actually did reach out to artists. They worked with a D.C. branding firm to get Black artists to create murals in battleground states. That was one interesting initiative. But I think the, the mood was really, of course, driven by tremendous fear and loathing of Trump. Speaking again of Shepard Ferry... I think a great illustration of the general tenor was a project that they did that he contributed to called Remember What They Did that targeted Black and Latinx neighborhoods with artworks calling out the outrages of the Trump administration. Like, again, Shepard Ferry's billboard in Cleveland that quoted Trump's notorious threat, when the looting starts, the shooting starts. And Claudio Martinez is in Cleveland that showed a child ripped from his parents at the border and 
Justin Hamptons in Youngstown, Ohio, quoting Trump saying that the coronavirus affects virtually nobody. It's so clear that the art community has been much more electrified by its revulsion of Trump than any kind of real wellspring of love and excitement about Joe Biden. How is the art world kind of processing his election now that he's in there? How is it reacting to his electoral victory? And how is it also reacting to this nightmarishly drawn out period of uncertainty where Trump is going through the pantomime motions of half-heartedly trying some kind of judicial coup of sorts. How is this being processed? Well, an artist friend of mine has been sharing information about workshops by the activist George Lakey, who has been talking about what exactly can we do if Trump tries to stage what I learned is actually not technically called a coup, but rather an autogolpe, where he <laughs> tries to illegitimately maintain power that he already has rather than take power by military means. So we all learn a bit of vocabulary there. Hmm. Uh, but also, we've all been holding each other's hands on social media. And I say that in the most sincere way, like, uh, there's been tremendous mixed feelings, I think, about Biden. I think artists and progressives who I am connected with online have great reservations about him as, you know, they talk about architect of the crime bill and, mm. you know, supporter of the Iraq war. And they point out Kamala Harris's role as a an overzealous prosecutor in California in their view. And so, you know, I talked to the artist Michael Rakowitz this morning, and his thought was art about this moment takes time to marinate. Look to the memes. And he and a few other friends of mine have been, you know, sharing memes about the the four seasons, for example, press conference that Giuliani held at Four Seasons Total Landscaping. And that is obviously I'm like the last person to say this, but a way that online culture and visual culture have come together to anonymously bubble up the emotions and reactions that we're all having. Wow, that's really interesting. Uh, well, thanks very much, Brian. Uh, it's been great to have you on the pod. And, and now let us go to Eileen Kinsella. Welcome back to the show, Eileen. How are you feeling these days? Um, great. Very happy about the outcome of the election. As Brian mentioned, it was a tense couple of weeks and also being in New York City, watching the reaction here and just feeling this sense of relief and looking forward to the future and this amazing sense of optimism that's currently kind of in the air. So I want to talk to you about the art market and the art business. Let me just get something off my chest a little bit, which is that, you know, we know that fine artists are enormously disposed towards progressive politics. You know, art mm -hmm. curators are reliably progressives. You see this in their choice of programming in museums and galleries. Both of these camps were pretty much assured Biden voters, even if they may see him as being too centrist, as Brian was saying, and not progressive right. enough. But the country, give or take about 5 million votes, was fairly evenly split between Biden and Trump voters. Where does the art market right. fall on the spectrum? Are art collectors and art dealers, are they guaranteed to be Biden voters? 
From what I've heard, yes, I would say yes, because hmm. I mean, we have we have two things here. We have what you describe as, you know, the artist outlook and then being more progressive and probably more likely to lean for Biden, even though what you're discussing, on the other hand, as far as an art collector, particularly a high net worth individual, might be more skewing towards economic policy or tax policy or or how they've done over the past couple of months or years, they still tend to swing left. And I haven't heard any support for Trump from any of the art world people that I spoke to. Our own Nate Freeman in his very popular art gossip column, Wet Paint, was reporting on how Ivanka Trump is now considering a return to the New York art scene and how there are some reliable people that are kind of her allies in this scene. You know, it came to my attention when I was doing a story on a grassroots organization or even just with some of the um, debates that came up about deaccessioning and museums relying on uh, selling works as opposed to donors. There was a study that showed that since April, the wealth of billionaires alone in America has increased by at least $845 billion during the first six months of the pandemic. So it doesn't necessarily mean that you're a collector, but certainly that wealth doesn't necessarily have to be divided by where your political views are, if that makes sense. So speaking of policy, let's take a moment to rewind the clock, because right. four years ago, you know, after President Trump's earth-shaking election, you wrote an analysis of what Trump would do for art, what his policies would do for the art business. What did right. you predict back then? Well, <laughs> we predicted that based on our talks with experts, we were not making predictions, but two things stood out to me. One was that amid the uncertainty about how his election would shake out, that sometimes when there is economic uncertainty, there's a flight to quality so that people hmm. will tend to go towards assets like artwork or wine or gold. So there was that prediction. And the other thing was that Somebody pointed out to me that even if you were unhappy with him as president, that you would maybe take some comfort in knowing that his pro-business strategies or policies would ultimately benefit the art market. If you're thinking of the way that high net worth individuals and collectors would fare under his presidency, you might think, well, that would be good for the art market. And I have to say, on one level, everything that went wrong could have gone wrong. One of the first things that he did was strip out art from a very favorable tax benefit called 1031 exchanges. It was originally created for real estate so that you could swap things in and out without paying taxes. Art collectors loved it. They took advantage of it. And it was a very popular strategy because, as you probably know, the capital gains rate on art is the highest of any assets. It's up there with stocks. And so this was a very popular tax strategy by which you could, you know, trade a Monet for a Picasso as long as they were somewhat the same fair market value and avoid a hefty tax bill. That went out the window in early 2019. And Opportunity Zones, this vehicle that Trump had stood behind where people would receive tax benefits for investing in distressed areas was floated as the next big thing. As far as I can tell, that never took off. Nobody understands it or utilizes it. And it's still sort of like a work in progress. And then we come to what happened in early 2019, where the budget proposal had a line called stopping wasteful and unnecessary spending. And it was a, an umbrella to eliminate the National Endowment for the Arts, the National Endowment for the Humanities, and the Institute of Museum and Library Sciences, because the explanation was they're not considered core federal responsibilities and make up only a small fraction of the billions spent each year. So, so that was a really stunning 
turn of events amid everything else that was going on. He also got rid of SALT, which was, mm-hmm. um, how, what does that stand for? State and local taxes on on mortgages over a certain amount that were very popular in the coastal mm-hmm. areas that where a lot of galleries are. Um, right. So I think that that raised overhead of any dealers who own a gallery. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and which is all to say that, you know, the hoped for friendliness to the art world just didn't happen. And, and then you also had unintended consequences of some of the trade wars. Like one of the most random ones that happened last year that I was alerted to was attacks that happened on lithographs from the UK and from Germany. And it was part of a broader dispute about civil aviation. And it was literally the most random fallout where there was an extra 25% on contemporary photographs less than 20 years old or lithographs. It was so random. And so in my mind, it's the pushback to, oh yeah, this is somebody who's going to benefit pro-business. It was exactly the opposite, whether it was intended or not. Were there any ways in which it was actually good for the art market, where the art market got a Trump bump, so to speak? Well, we could look at that wealth that was created not only in the past six months, but over the past couple of years, like the art market, I think, just kind of steamed along as it always did. Like one of the things we were asking people about was the fact that the 2016 election came right before the big art week. And, you know, it didn't affect whether a Monet haystack sold for upwards of $20 million or things that are the top, top flight blue chip works maintain their value and they kind of sped along the way that they always do. I mean, we've seen some degree of that also in the in the recent auctions, but I wouldn't attribute that to Trump. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like there could be that if Wall Street does well, yeah, the art market is doing well. So if there was a bump, it certainly wasn't because of any targeted or supportive policies, whether to artists or to collectors specifically. It is remarkable. But mm-hmm. let's move on to Joe Biden. You know, as Donald Trump relentlessly pointed out during the campaign, Biden has served as a politician in public life for 47 years. So he's mm-hmm. obviously, you know, had his, his signature on a lot of legislation, a lot of policies. What do we know about his track record vis-a-vis art that could give us some kind of an idea of what yeah. a Biden presidency might do to impact the art business? Well, I think people are celebrating what they know to be his extraordinary support and enthusiasm for the arts. And they know that they have somebody with very open ears, you know, in his long tenure as a senator, he not only supported the NEA consistently and was an ardent supporter of them, he also co-sponsored legislation to establish the National Museum of African American History and Culture Mm -hmm. in Washington, D.C., And he helped to secure stimulus job funding for arts groups when he was vice president of the United States. A person that I was talking to yesterday who runs the Americans for the Arts Organization was just saying that he's somebody who clearly understands that arts are integral to both revitalizing the soul and rebuilding the infrastructure of America, particularly as it relates to coming out of COVID and this broader recovery that we need. Hmm. His first step is obviously building his coronavirus task force. Right. Has he done anything that might tip his hand on what he would do for art? Based on the experts I spoke with, he has not. And that's not a bad thing. It's more just the notion that he is a supporter of the arts and that his first priorities will be, you know, getting COVID under control. People are pushing him to pass another stimulus package, another relief package, and to make sure that artists and art galleries are eligible for another round of PPP. 
which is the Paycheck Protection Program, which was a big deal at the start of the pandemic. So I think there's a lot of a sense that he will listen to those requests and he'll be open to supporting them. But it doesn't look like he's taking aim at the art market. I think for the time being, it's the sense that he might restore this a sense of calmness, which you know then could get the economy back on track and have people start paying attention to art again. But one of the tax experts I spoke with yesterday said his win plus a Republican-controlled Senate and the prospect of a COVID vaccine could be a trifecta for Wall Street. And then, of course, you know, by extension, the art market. Well, I, I will point out that we don't know exactly yet that it's going to be Republican-controlled Senate because of the likelihood of runoffs in those two Senate races in Georgia. Let's go on to Kamala Harris. What do we know about her and and her stance on the arts, her support for the arts, or, or even her just like general engagement with the arts. Yeah. Again, everyone has this sense of optimism and excitement that here is somebody who was going to listen with open ears. I mean, she was a vocal opponent when Trump tried to, you know, suggest that budget of eliminating NEA, NEH, and she pushed back against that and stressed the importance of art both on social media and publicly and vocally. And her own background is reason for belief that she's a strong supporter of the arts. When she was district attorney, she was on the board of SFMOMA. She talks about the fact that her late uncle worked at the Studio Museum in Harlem and her stepdaughter is an artist. And she said recently that all of the experiences through her childhood that she experienced with art made her realize the importance of giving children and giving artists the ability to have vehicles where they can express themselves, but it's also a way to build their confidence. So all of those things are just polar opposite to the kind of rhetoric and pushback and cuts and putting art low down the totem pole and saying it's a it's a waste of resources. It's like it's it's really it's wonderful to hear those kind of expressions uh, from, from somebody who's who's now in office and has a position of authority or will be in office shortly. Eileen, thank you very much. Always a pleasure to have you. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Let us throw to Artnet News' chief art critic, who's reporting live on the election from the field of epistemological inquiry. If I had an air horn, I'd play it now. Uh, welcome back on the show, Ben Davis. Hey, Andrew. So in the days in advance of the election, I remember you were pretty confident that Biden was going to win, but you were not let's say, over the moon about the prospect of a Biden presidency. What is your mood? How would you express what you're feeling right now? Cautiously upbeat, but fretful. You know, uh, four years ago, right before the election, I was on an Australian radio program where they were asking me about the art of the election and specifically said, you know, we've been talking about all this art, which was very similar to the art that Brian just described in its character, that it was mainly anti-Trump, not particularly pro-Hillary, just as this cycle, it's been mainly anti-Trump art, not pro-Biden art. And I just had to admit to the host of that show that, you know, all the culture we're talking about comes from a very specific universe. And that when he played to me pro-Trump country songs, they weren't the kind of songs that would come on in a bar in Brooklyn. So I think that this election once again vindicates my overall perspective, which is that what's most interesting is not what the wisdom that art and the art world brings to the world. What's most interesting is to interrogate the limits of what mm -hmm. art can know or what art says or who art reaches. I think that generally in these matters of art and politics, that should be the starting point of our conversation is recognizing the limits of what we can know or mm -hmm. um, who we're speaking to 
And if you start there, I think the conversation becomes a little bit more productive. Not to be a Nate Silver reading, you know, wonk or anything, but there is a chance that this could be a very big victory for Biden, where he could get 306 electoral votes, which is what Trump got back in 2016. And he would have, you know, a decisive majority of the popular vote by 5 million. And the way that the vote has been counted has been suggesting this condition of a close race where the score at the end of the day might be something that is significantly in Biden's favor. Well, not to be too much of a lefty contrarian, Andrew, I think for me, the, the question is more what our expectations were and how certain people were about what Trump and Trumpism represented in their minds and then what it turned out being. Because Mm -hmm. I think after four years of this exhausting discourse, anti-Trump discourse that we've been a part of and all the protests and anti-Trump art and so on, I think people had a very pronounced view of what they thought he represented to the public in general. And I think as it turns Mm -hmm. out, that's what the, what the election tells us is that perhaps the universe of discourse around us isn't as reflective as what's going on there uh, in the world in general. Because I think for mm-hmm. most people, you would say that this election was a referendum on Trumpism as sexism, Trumpism as racism, and Trumpism as white supremacy. And as it turns out, the vote totals show that, um, once again, his main base of support is white rural people that mm-hmm. he actually lost because he lost ground with suburban white men, whereas he picked up a little bit with every other demographic, with women, with people of color in general. These are marginal gains, but I think that defies what people thought that he represented. I think that, for me, is the lesson in going forward. In a big way, this is also the lesson of 2016. And it's crystal clear that that's the biggest takeaway from this election, is that the political sentiment is spread across a really broad spectrum in this country, And that it comes down functionally to being evenly split between these camps. You know, when we think about art, we're often thinking about art that is being made and shown in cities, large part coastal cities. We don't really think about art as the art that maybe are thinking of it as. Was there any pro-Trump art? Again, I mean, this is not my universe. I think we have to acknowledge that the entire way we're speaking to each other right now assumes a certain audience and assumes a certain mm-hmm. universe. I mean, we wouldn't speak so cavalierly about these things if, if if we didn't have kind of a picture of who our audience is, which is, you know, mm-hmm. probably about 80 percent mainstream or 70 percent mainstream Democrats, 20 percent further to the left and probably 10 percent further to the right. So I just don't know if we know exactly the cultural reference points or cultural touchstones for, I guess, what you might call the other side. We know that Trump's base is very evangelical. This is a huge Mm -hmm. cultural component there. And there was some interesting research-based speculation in the New York Times about that possibility, the undersamplings in the polls that led people to have a distorted sense of Trump's support this time around correlates with places where there's a lot of activity around the QAnon conspiracy theory, Mm -hmm. which we've talked about on this show before. It's cultural dimensions and how it sort of exists in a parallel universe of culture where the signifiers of liberal culture are always this kind of coded reference to a secret, a secret conspiracy. And so there's that. And then I think Trump, like anybody, has represented a coalition of peoples. But 
I think from a cultural criticism point of view, the single point that I come back to the most is around levels of education. Mm. Because we know that his his base is very heavily weighted towards people um, who don't have a college degree. And if we look at all the studies on the factors that determine who is an art consumer, who's an art fan, it is very heavily weighted towards education. As in every degree of education that you get, every level you of education you attain makes you more likely to be an art consumer. So, in fact, our audience is probably inversely correlated to the base of the Trump audience in a way that makes it very difficult to get a, a head around the phenomenon. So I was just talking to Eileen about how Trump's policies really didn't have that much of an impact on the art market. And as, as much as he was trying to thwart patronage from the federal level in art, he didn't really have that much of an impact. But if you look at the way that the cultural discourse in the art community has changed since he was elected, he actually had an extraordinarily huge impact. How did this narrative of events course through the art world in terms of of upheaval after upheaval and conversation and debate after debate? It's a good question, and it requires putting yourself back into the mindset that we had four years ago when Trump was elected, because it's really hard to overstate, although easy to forget, because things have been such a continuous in such a continuous panic state since then, just what a sense of how traumatic his victory was. And traumatic in the sense where it's like an unexpected, unthinkable thing happens. And not only did he win, but he won not in the popular vote, but in terms of politically pretty resoundingly, where he came in with the power to govern. And the liberal universe of opinion felt extremely panicked, disempowered, and reacted I think, by doubling down on culture, as in with actual power blocked, what educated anti-Trump opinion had was an overrepresentation in media and culture. And so what happened in, in the art world is, is really a subset of what happened in the media and culture industries in general, which is just a tremendous um, politicization of everything. And sort of, uh, I don't want to say radicalization, because I don't think a lot of this anti-Trump sentiment is particularly radical, actually, as we see, you know, it expressed itself in Joe Biden, who is not a radical figure. But it intensified greatly so that MSNBC became the most watched network on cable for a while, or some of his shows began to compete with Fox News. Outlets like The Times and The Washington Post made a big deal out of standing up for the truth in a post-truth world. I think a lot of focus gets put on their tepid efforts to add intellectual diversity to their opinion pages um, in the form of never-Trump Republicans post-election. But really, the, the main event at places like those kind of mainstream papers is that they just became very reliable sources of anti-Trump red meat. I mean, you look at the New York Times op-ed on any given day, it's almost indistinguishable from the last one. It's just a series of opinions that are like uh, that are variations on how dare he. There have been a lot of articles about uh, how Trump killed political comedy. 
back in the Bush years. Jon Stewart's Daily Show felt like a real breath of fresh air and just became mainstream comedy. You know, there are like a million Daily Show clones took over. Stephen Colbert, who got his start at making fun of right wing talking heads, went from being a satirist to just being the host of a mainstream late night show and became the most popular one, vaulted past his apolitical competitors by becoming like just a very reliable source of making fun of Trump. That is mainstream culture. And art sort of similarly went in this direction. What you got is right after the election, a series of attempts to kind of mobilize the art community. On the election day, there was something called the J20 Art Strike, this call to shut down the art world in solidarity with the resistance didn't really happen. Hmm. But it did sort of set the tone for the four years to come, which was just a lot of anti-Trump art. A lot of it very, very bad. That can only be explained by just a bottomless pit of hunger for symbolic anti-Trump theater that kind hmm. of didn't really go anywhere, stayed pretty confined in the bubble of liberal opinion and the art world. That, that in a nutshell, I think, is, is, is the last four years, is that it began with this idea that we need to question ourselves and break out of the bubble and, and then very quickly became oriented on it itself, like turned back into itself, into a kind of a continuous ratification of anti-Trump sentiment that I'm not sure reckoned with the initial problem. As a matter of fact, I'm sure it didn't because of what just happened and how, once again, we're kind of learning the lesson that we we don't really understand our own biases. These are discussions that were very much, you know, visible and salient within the art community. But I think that the debates and discussions that were probably most visible from the vantage point of the Trump constituency has revolved around, you know, what has been termed cancel culture. And obviously this kind of, it, this goes along a very broad range of, of flavors where you go from this historical reckoning with Civil War era statues that are supportive of Confederate victories and values, you know, a purging of the, of the demons of, of American history. And then this goes to patrons on um, the boards of museums. Where do they get their money from? Is, it, is this a, a source of revenue that we uh, morally agree with? And then it goes to how are these male artists behaving around women and are they sexually harassing them? And then it starts to shade into this purging instinct, which is kind of the bad bosses phase of cancel culture. How do you understand this discourse and the way that it has kind of evolved and morphed over these four years? Well, this is a really complex thing. I don't really like the term. It, it's ambiguous. It means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. It's essentially an extension of the conversation about political correctness gone gone uh, wild. I think it's interesting to reflect back that the term political correctness came out of the early 90s, as in it became like an intense obsession in the early 90s. Um, and that was a period when the political left or political liberals were, were marginalized after eight years of Reagan and then the first Bush one term. And then as now, because the liberal politics didn't have much of a hold on the 
centers of political and economic power, it doubled down in culture and produced and tried to carry on the gains of the 1960s around anti-racism and anti-sexism in the discursive sphere with positive effects, but also that things took on a very heavily symbolic form and liberal discourse became more and more rooted in the academia and culture. And so cancel culture, I see it as a re- as a reversion to that pattern where once again, there's a huge obsession up with it that came out of the Trump years and uh, obsession, I should say, from the right as well as from the left. That partly has to do with the new ways that discourse circulates on social media, but also partly came out of the same pattern where the left was marginalized in the economy and in politics, but strong in culture and academia. And so focused very heavily on talking about the limits of speech, about what what was positive and negative speech and what the forms of symbols take. And I think that you just have to have a complex way of looking at that because symbols are, have power. I mean, I... That's, I'm an art critic. Of course, I believe symbols have power. It is extremely important um, that we take symbolic power very, 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 very serious. And I mean, in your question, you run together a lot of things. You know, I think that one of our problems right now is that there is no organization. There's no center to discourse. There's no way to there's no way for people to organize a strategy around coalition building where you can say like, okay, so. These are very important questions that are very immediate. These are less important questions. And the political discourse, the media discourse, has no interest in making those kinds of distinctions because continuous outrage is its business model. So you just get Mm -hmm. a perpetual confusion and chaos of critique. And Trumpism is based so much on uh, people without college degrees, who are the majority, by the way, in the country, then this is a very good way by so overly focusing on symbolic politics to alienate liberal politics from a lot of the country. I think the art world is an extremely important place. Generations and generations and generations have come to New York City looking to escape the narrow-mindedness and you know, small-town mindset and bigotry that they find in, in places where they come from and find places of symbolic experimentation. And that, in my opinion, is is one of the most noble and great things about the art world. But that same process has also been part of the process of demographic sorting that has led us to the extremely polarized country that we live in now, where, you know, the two halves don't understand each other at all. So we've been talking a little bit about how uh, four years ago, there was a moment of soul searching about coastal elitist bubbles. And that faded away pretty quickly. And now that divide between the cosmopolitan, polyglot, racially diverse cities and the conservative countryside that seems in its mind, at least, to be in a state of existential identitarian crisis, this divide has been made bracingly clear once again. And I wonder, can art do anything to bridge this divide? When it comes to the question of how art can change the world, that our credo should be the same as the Hippocratic Oath, which is first do no harm, you know? (laughs) This question comes up every time there's any kind of political issue is like, how can art help? And I think that that's like the first question for artists, for art professionals, because the entire industry exists 
to ratify the idea that art's the most important thing. But this is kind of a little bit like when all you have is a hammer, every problem you have looks like a nail. And I am unconvinced that art is the problem for what ails us for reasons that I've already said, because, you know, art has a very specific audience that's a valuable audience, is a worthwhile audience to mobilize, but it's not a universal audience. And I think it's much better to make sure that the kinds of discourse around us, the kind of art shows that we produce, are helping people see the biases and presuppositions of the world they live in, rather than making this pretense of being a form of righteous propaganda, convincing the nebulously defined other side when it's not actually reaching them at all. It's just affirming an identity. Mm-hmm. So let me just give you an example. Because when I say first do no harm, let's just define what the harm might be. That on the eve of the election, the New York Times' podcast, The Daily, did a report from Wisconsin about the ideological battlefield in Wisconsin. And they talked to the two sides. They talked to a pro-Trump, anti-mask bar owner who explained his point of view and seemed like, you know, I don't know everything he believes. He came off as a pretty ordinary, caring person, even if his anti-mask policies did seem to have cost his staff in terms of their their own health. But then they interviewed the other side, the Democrat pro-Biden side. And that representative was a gentleman who owned an, a rival bar. He was a Harvard-educated Silicon Valley millionaire who had then moved to New York to pursue his dream of singing opera before moving into the north woods of Wisconsin to open this bar and was so appalled by the community around him and their support for Trump and their anti-mass sentiment that he started a Facebook page to shame people publicly if they were anti-mask and just clearly a hated figure in that community and clearly not doing the cause that he was fighting for any good because if there's one sure way to get people to not listen to you, it's to say you're a dumb rube who doesn't understand science. You may even believe that, but that's not an effective ideological strategy. And my fear and my belief actually is that what the art sphere generally does is inculcate that sense of cultural superiority with people, partly because people um, are deeply invested in, in very important causes. But in the the entire way these things unspool is a way that really serves to ratify a sense of having an enlightened identity much more than it serves to convince people who don't share those ideals. And I think that, that everything we do, you have to be really clear on which of those two functions you're serving. And in terms of the art conversation, what I'd like to see going forward is like much more awareness of that that is what we're doing. You know, I just do not understand the obsession with art that like beats its breast and says that Trump is a bad guy and says that in front of people who all agree with that. You know, I, I essentially do not understand that it'd be much more useful, more important, much more interesting intervention to you know, turn the mirror around and be like, OK, what are the what are the limits of what we believe? You know, why is it that so many people see us as out of touch with their lives you know, and if we were able to to have that kind of conversation, then you have the beginning of a practical strategy to do something. So, I mean, this has been fascinating conversation. And I know that you're not an oracle 
or haruspects in terms of your ability to predict the future. But what do you think the next four years are going to hold for the art world for a lot of these conversations? Oh my God, Andrew, there's something called expectations management. (laughs) You ask me to make predictions. You're going to, you're going to turn me into a Nate Silver. Everybody hates. Um, (laughs) So the question is, um, what can we expect? I think choppy waters, essentially, you know, a thing about the, the Trump administration has been an enormous amount of ideological difference has been hidden beneath anti-Trumpism. Even, frankly, within this conversation that we've just had. You know, he's such a revolting character, has been such a revolting character to pretty much everybody I know, everybody in my professional orbit, everybody that I talk to day to day. But, you know, the truth is that those people don't agree on a heck of a lot of other things. So... What you're going to have is a Biden presidency with a constituency that's really vaguely defined as anti-Trumpism. And within the art world, there's going to be pressures in two directions where some people are going to be like, let's just get back to the relatively aloof era of the Obama years. After all, the Obama years also saw the birth of the Tea Party and the radicalization of the Republican Party. So then there's going to be other people who are like, the genie's out of the bottle uh, in terms of uh, politics. We need to claim space and radicalize art further. And whether that circular conversation between those two forces breaks out into a larger, more relevant thing will be something we'll be watching very closely. Well, thanks very much, Ben. This is definitely a preview of things to come. And weirdly, it feels like this is symbolically in some way, you know, the end of the, the first season of the Art Angle podcast and maybe the beginning of the next season. So stay tuned. That's it for this week's episode of the Art Angle. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili, Tim Schneider, and Caroline Goldstein. Thanks for listening and see you next week.